Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for a conversation in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with two physicians, Dr. Brandon Beal and Dr. Blake Steele. Thank you so much for joining me, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Thomas. So we'll start sort of in a um, in a hierarchy of, of who graduated first. So Brandon, tell us about your sort of career thus far as we talk about how you make a fellowship decision, how you decide to pursue a Mohs fellowship, what it takes to match it to fellowship. So just update us with sort of where you went to do your residency and then where you are now for fellowship, please. Sure. So actually, in my, my introduction to Mohs surgery just happened to be during med school. So that's, that was kind of my introduction to Mohs surgery. So I've been pursuing my goal of being a Mohs surgeon uh, ever since then. I did my med school at St. Louis University. I was there with Dr. Fosco and Ian Marr. And then uh, I did my residency at Cleveland Clinic. And I had a lot of exposure to most surgery with Dr. Vitimus, yourself, and many others. And now I'm with uh, Drs. Zitelli and Broadland. And I'm specifically uh, with Dr. Broadland in his fellowship now in Pittsburgh. Gotcha. So you graduated uh, residency in 2019, and you're now in the last few months of your uh, Mo's fellowship. Yeah. Uh, Blake, how about you? Tell us your your career thus far. Yeah, so um, pretty similar to Brandon's. Um, I did my med school at Medical College of Virginia at VCU in Richmond, Virginia, and I did uh, you know get a little bit of exposure to Mo's surgery at that time, and that's when I became you know you know very interested in it. And then I came. I'm currently in my last year of residency at the Cleveland Clinic. And I've had some great uh, exposure to Mo's, working with some great uh, physicians. And I just, I, you know, through my time here, I fell in love with with Mo's surgery, and and uh, was very grateful for the, you know, my path so far in in helping guide me into this this specialty because I'm very very excited about it. Now, where will you be doing your uh, your fellowship? Yeah, so um, I am going to be doing my fellowship next year, soon when I graduate in July at uh, Geisinger working out there with uh, Dr. Ramsey and, and the other great uh, surgeons out there. So I'm really excited about it. Great. And so, you know, this is a little bit of a different podcast than some of the other ones we've had. We're not going to really talk about research or a particular article. This may be one more for our younger audience that's really in fellowship or uh, potentially even considering applying for fellowship. So I guess we'll we'll walk through it in the natural pathway of how to prep for the application. Then we'll talk about the application process in and of itself. Continue with the interview process, hoping we all get to that point of having interviews. 
and then um, maybe how we uh, frame that into our career going forward. So we'll we'll go back to you, Brandon. From from when you decided to to go into a a fellowship route, how did you flip that switch? What what were the main things that you felt you needed to do from a curriculum, from a CV standpoint to, to become a competitive applicant? I think for, for me, I'm just passionate about most surgery. And so I really didn't, the switch was always flipped. And so I, I was, I was interested in most surgery that Dr. Vitamis, Dr. Lopez, my program director, they, they knew that. And so I was, you know, if I if I could do a Mohs rotation or observe Mohs surgeries or participate, I did that in any way possible. And then I got involved with uh, within that uh, section of the department with research and uh, other stuff, and had a lot of great opportunities to create and to lead the creation of a uh, squamous cell carcinoma database. So that that's basically you know just getting involved with the department and then seeing what opportunities there are in your department or maybe even uh, other departments. How important do you think that research is? And again, before you answer, the caveat is here, and this continues for the whole conversation. This is really three individuals discussing their exposure. So in instances where this does not conform with what you may read on websites or on ACGME websites, please resort to those recommendations. This is truly our anecdotal experience, and, and please, uh, as a listener, take it as such. So uh, Brandon, in your experience, what was the relevance of, of research to your final success? I, I really don't know. I did the research because I was interested and, um, you know, I was just truly interested in the topics and answering some of the, the questions about squamous cell. It, it does seem like, it would seem like research is, is important, but that's honestly a question maybe the program directors could answer better. I mean, I do, I do believe it serves a it serves a key aspect. It might be slightly the importance might be slightly over exaggerated and force people into research that aren't really that interested. And so I would um, I would certainly hope there's avenues for those people that aren't interested in research to still to still uh, match into most fellowships because they can still be excellent teachers, educators, and most surgeons. And some of that goes um, goes beyond research and not just that narrow definition. I, I think that's a great point, and certainly as a as a researcher myself, it's probably a trap that I fall into as as thinking that it's a primary vehicle to to build a a CV. Blake, how how was it in your experience during the actual interview process? Was research something that was asked about a lot, or did you find that it was really tailored to your application? Um, I think. Uh... You know, in my experience, uh, it was tailored to my application, but in the sense of, you know, when it came to the questions of research, they did talk to me about the research I, you know, have have done um, to ask me more specifics about that. So I do think, much like Brandon had said, you know, I don't know to what extent each individual program is looking for research. However, I do feel it is, you know, on some level important to, to be engaged in. I do think it's, it's uh, a worthwhile endeavor. You know, I don't have nearly as much uh, research or publications as, as uh, Brandon. Um, he's phenomenal at that. Um, but I do have some, and, and I would say that um, even though 
they're you know some people might be questioning whether they want to be full full on into to doing research or they're kind of limited my, in my experience i've really enjoyed not just the research and the things that i've learned from the research itself but also being able to interact with um my mentors with being able to to speak with them understand their thought process being able to work with them one on one and that is one way in which my my love for Moe's grew even more, not just because of the research, but because of the relationship and the, the learning that I gained from my mentors as I was completing and doing the research. And I think that's an excellent point because as, as someone who routinely writes the letters of recommendations, it's, it's great to have abundant topics to, to, to really cover, you know, in an effort to always more show what you're capable of rather than to, to list adjectives. It's great to be able to comment on shared surgical experiences as well as shared research success. A lot of residents do research in part because it gives them the opportunity to go to some of the professional meetings. Um, leaving the large AAD aside, for somebody who knows they want to go into most surgery, do you think it's important or valuable or necessary to attend the ASDS meeting in the fall or the ACMS meeting in the spring? Brandon, you've been to, to both. What's your thought? From a resident's perspective, I really like the ASDS. I think it's extremely resident friendly. They cater towards residents. Um, they make it easy to get to the conference. The, they have funding there. They have a lot of resident programming. And so uh, as a resident, that was one of my uh, favorite conferences. And um, unfortunately, both the Mose College and the ASDS were, you know, or excuse me, just the Mose College and the AAD were canceled this year. So you agree that it's not an absolute must-have for networking opportunities. Uh -huh. um, it's nice to be able to go to, to see what the end point is, but not a, a must-have. Oh, I, I agree. Right. It's definitely not a must-have, either, either one. I don't, you know, for me, there was no major networking with, with program directors or, or anything like that. It, they're just, um, the more you get to see your friends and present some research, see what other research people are doing, and then also uh, learn. The, um, there's a lot of good lectures and stuff like that from uh, leaders, leaders in the field. And uh, it just, it basically just creates ideas and then you take those ideas and you read about it, you think about it and you take them home and um, try to, you know, try to improve. Blake, since you're closer to the actual application process, um, I want to ask you some more detailed questions, realizing we're getting somewhat personal here. Sure. Do you remember how many programs you applied to? I don't remember the exact number. Um, I do. It was a little bit, a little over half the programs. Mm hmm and speaking to, you know, many different people, and that's one thing I would definitely recommend anybody do, go to multiple different sources on what their experience was. And then as you, as you said before, you know, it's ultimately going to be up to the individual themselves on what he or she wants to do regarding, you know, how many numbers and where to apply. But as I was able to talk to many different people in their experience and their recommendations, you know, I got a lot of people saying, oh, you should apply to every single program. What do you have to lose? And I had other people telling me, really only go to the places that you can truly see yourself. And I think a good blend of those two is kind of what I, I tried to pick. 
um, you know, obviously applying to the places that I aspire to be at and wanted to be at. But then at the same time, you, you don't really realize how much you'd be surprised if you go on to an interview to a place you'd never really thought of and you mind a, and might end up falling in love with it. Um, and so that's kind of the approach that I took. And so how did you select your actual programs? You don't have to tell me how you, how you selected the, the 25 out of the 50, for example, but, but what were some of the things that you looked at as you were making a list of, of programs that you wanted to uh, apply to before you even had the opportunity to meet with the people there? Sure. I, I wanted to, I pictured myself in five or 10 years from now and thinking, what is it that I want to be doing? What are the things that I'm most passionate about? Because um, we know in, in the Mohs world and the dermatologic surgery world, procedural dermatology, there are so many different avenues you can take and you can really kind of pick your niche if you'd like on such a, a vast uh, array of options. Um, and so as I was looking at that, I definitely wanted to pick a place where I could have great you know, surgical technique and training and you know, complex reconstruction as well as I really wanted to be able to, you know, treat my patients as a whole in a sense that, you know, whatever tumor came in, in the door, I wanted to be an expert in it. I wanted to, you know, be, be, be capable of, of, you know, treating them as, as fully and as completely as I could. So when it comes to the surgical most aspect of, you know, rare and complex tumors um, and more, you know, run of the mill tumors, as well as the, the surgical techniques required to repair and, and treat my patients was the most important goal. And so as speaking to, you know, reading through the different programs, listings on their, their websites, um, and also just being able to talk to people who I know who have connections or experience with other programs to get to know the more detailed ideas of what happens in those fellowships was really helpful in making me align what my goals were with the potential fellowships I could match into. Brandon, anything to add in terms of selecting the programs that you considered applying for? I think with the programs, some of them are much more Mohs heavy. Some of them are mixed Mohs versus cosmetic. And so the, I think the applicant should have to say, uh, see which, which programs they're most interested in. And then, and then that's something for them to decide on their own and then to think about. And I, I completely agree with Blake. Some programs you think you really want to be at, you interview there. And you find yourself maybe fitting with a program that you d you didn't think you'd fit with. So the program you thought you fit with, you're like, ah, oh, maybe I'm not the greatest fit. And then another program, uh, you're a better fit with. So I think it's, I would definitely be be open to uh, to interviewing and applying at at programs, and not just, you know, you might think you're a perfect fit, but it, you just don't know until you interview. So it's it's tough. So I I think applying a little bit more broadly is a, is a good idea. And I guess I'll just add that more and more I've come to the realization as I look at programs is that really with the rare exception, every fellow has a, has a year to, to complete their training. And while there's a relatively uniform degree of things that you have to um, accomplish or achieve as a fellow, it's really about what happens in the extra time. And I, I think it's worth looking into whether as a fellow you spend that time broadening your horizons and, and becoming more comfortable with injectables, um, unique procedures like liposuction or blepharoplasty, or a avenue of Mohs that's maybe not practiced everywhere like Mohs for melanoma, 
or whether you're getting into some truly complex reconstruction. Because at the end of the day, it's 12 months for everyone. Mm -hmm. And you cannot do everything to the maximum degree. Uh, that's simply not feasible. So I think it's very important to make a list of things that you want to be comfortable with at the end of your, your fellowship. And let's say not every program does interpolation flaps. Well, the maximum reconstructive effort was something that I had high on my priority list. And so I, I strongly considered that when I considered the programs as I ranked them. I can say this because I'm out and by myself now, but um, I had very little interest in, in cosmetics. And so programs that had more than a half day or a day of cosmetics ended up being much lower on my list. And there's no right or wrong to that. It's just you need to take the time to, to reflect and decide what your priorities are. You are going to be distinct, the two of you, in that one is pursuing a university-based fellowship, whereas the other is in a, in a private practice. Uh, Blake, I'll turn it to you first. Was that an intentional decision based on your future career and maybe your future desire to practice in such an environment? Or, or, or did you consider both formats equally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I considered both um, in, you know, a university or a private practice model, um, both equally. I didn't really care to have to be at a university or um, a private practice. I, I really tried to see what the level of training and experience was going to be like at each individual one. That was probably in part because I, you know, wasn't entirely sure and I'm still working on my ideas of what I want to do when I'm when I'm finished with training. I do kind of like the university practice and and that idea of a career. However, I'm not completely set on that and that probably influenced the fact that I was open to both both different models because I feel there are many programs out there both private practice and university based that are phenomenal and that if you go to one that's in a private practice, that doesn't exclude you from being able to pursue a university-based um, career and vice versa. So when it came to my future goals, it, that really did not influence me much. It was more the, what, am I, what are they teaching their fellows? What's the experience that each fellow is getting? Because I found that there were so many out there, both university and private, that, that offered so many great, great experiences. Brandon? I, I agree with what Blake said. Okay. And I, um, I'll close the loop here. And, and, and I also agree. I think that um, what we really haven't talked about because it's going to be so intangible is that ultimately when you apply to a program and you present for the interview, and we'll talk about the day of experience in just a minute, you either have chemistry with a, with a group or with an individual or you don't. And mm -hmm. I find that that will, um, after certain minimum priorities are met, will far surpass any other decision making in, in fellowship because no more than in fellowship, you you know spend a lot of time with a single individual. And if that isn't based on, on good chemistry and interaction, then it becomes a very long year. And conversely, if it is based on, on good chemistry uh, and interactions, then it can become a, a you know a lifelong mentorship and, and potentially friendship. So Let's let's talk about the the interview process. Uh, you're both, you know, relatively close to it, and I'll add some of my own experiences. But without getting into the specific questions asked by individual programs, was there any 
anything to the structure of of interviews that you thought was unique or strikingly different from from derm residency application uh, were there any programs again without names of the programs that had a unique aspect to their interview when you when you interview for most fellowship it's an it's an observational day. So the first thing is, for most of them, you show up in scrubs, or you might show up in a suit and change into scrubs. But you're going to spend most of your interview day in scrubs, and so you're observing the surgery. And then the formal, typically, your interview is throughout the day. You'll ask questions. The program director will ask, you know, will show you things, highlight highlight their programs. For lunch, you go to lunch with the fellow, typically, and uh, that's your time as an applicant to ask the fellow questions. And definitely make make the most of that time. Ask ask the uh, the questions you need, and then either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, then you'll sit down with the program director and have a more for, formal uh, interview. And so the important thing is, Thomas mentioned this: is that you're going to be sitting next to this individual for 250 days out of the year at the microscope, shoulder to shoulder. So you want to make sure that you have a good. Uh, this is somebody that you think that. You don't want to do that with. That can be the mentor, the advisor, uh, the teacher that you need, and and vice versa. So I think it's an important, really important decision for both people. I think you also have to look at it from the program director's standpoint too. They're going to be sitting next to you, and so that is that a good fit for them? And so I think it's it's important to consider it from both from both sides. Yeah, I, I can. Like anything to add? No, that I mean that's exactly what I was going to say, basically. Are there any particular questions that you were very glad that you asked the the fellow in your one-on-one time or that you, in hindsight, wish you had asked the the fellow in your one-on-one time? I think the most important thing you can do is observe what the fellow does because if you match there, you're going to be that fellow. And if the fellow's observing and not operating, that's going to be your future. If the fellow's operating and they're hands-on, that's going to be your future. And so the program directors have done this for many, many years. And this is your first year and your only year being the fellow. And so um, what you, you know, I think really observe the fellow and uh, see, see what they're doing. Because if you match into that program, that's going to be you. Yeah, I, um, I would agree with, uh, with what Brandon said. I think one of the most important things that you can gather you know, from the fellow is that exact thing, not, not just in speaking with them if you go to lunch with them or throughout the day, but you know, seeing what they do. And I think it's both ways, like how hands-on are they? You know, it can be great to be really hands-on, but at the same time, if, if you are in a place where the fellow is in there all by themselves, which can be nice, but the, the attending or the most surgeon isn't around, it almost is kind of, well, how much learning are they really gaining? But and on the flip side, are they also just observing? Are they really not doing much hands-on experience? And and really, it's it's up to each individual on what they want. They may like certain you know practice styles, but I think that's one of the a very helpful way to determine what you you can place yourself in their shoes in a year from now. What am I going to be doing in in learning? And I would maybe even extend that beyond the. The current fellow, and if you are truly passionate about a program or two, to get a sense of what their more recent graduate fellows are doing. Is their practice pattern, not that it has to be the same, but is it similar? Are you seeing their names on um, talks, on publications, if that's something that is important to you? Um, it's very hard to gauge a 
um, program's degree of, of mentorship, if that's something that you're looking for, based on a single day of interaction. And oftentimes, you can get a sense of that mentorship continuing beyond the year of fellowship by looking at you know, conferences, publications, uh, and, and other collaborations happening long after the fellowship was completed. Yeah, I, I, I would um, strongly, you know, agree with that as well. That was uh, one thing that was important to me too. And, and not just seeing what happened the day of, but, you know, I wanted to look exactly the way that you've said, Thomas, and what have past residents, or excuse me, fellows done? Um, and where are they? Are they in university practice? Are they in private practice? How involved in research or not involved? You know, and I think that that is um, really helpful to kind of see how this fellowship is going to help you project onto your future career. So I, I strongly agree with that. Brandon, if you're – sorry about that. Brandon, if you're comfortable um, with it, um, if you can maybe carry that a little bit more forward as you're starting to consider what you'll be doing in, in three to four months, the value of, of past fellows, do you mind expanding on that? So I'm going to be starting my own practice, uh, and I've been working on that for the last six months. The, the thing with that, Drs. Braun, Dr. Zatelli are extremely supportive. They support individuals in academia, you know, MUSC, UNC, uh, some other programs, University of Vermont. They have, they have former fellows in academia, but then have also started private practices. And so uh, for me, starting a private practice, I was open to academic programs and private practice programs. And I really think What's been helpful is obviously their network of former fellows has been extremely helpful, but also just contacting people that have uh, done it recently. And so I definitely have to give a lot of thanks. Uh, Thomas, some of you put me in contact with Nicole Velez, so she's been extremely helpful, extremely grateful for her help. And then with uh, the Zitalian Braun uh, program, Scott Freeman has been extremely helpful. And then Eric Wilkerson. So I, I think it's really just whether you're in the program or not, you know, for me, starting a practice, you've just been relying on, on that network, but then also, um, you know, you can certainly build the network out from other, uh, from other friends and, and coworkers. Excellent point. Thank, thank you for that. I guess we'll switch gear here a little bit. There's really no great heading for all of these things, but there's some loose ends that should be mentioned because I don't know if a applying dermatology resident is always going to be aware of it. Uh, you can comment after after I, I mention these if there's anything worth commenting on. So certainly things to consider are um, the opportunities for moonlighting, and um, I'll let you guys share on that in just a minute, um, but also looking at the call expectations for a program. And this may not be as readily apparent as, as you would like, and so certainly asking whether or not you take call um, not taking call may be immediately seen as a very positive thing by an applicant, but keep in mind that you'll be the primary surgeon one day, and it can be very helpful to know how to triage and manage patients overnight. So whether or not you're taking Mo's call, and especially if you're at a university or a larger group practice, if there's any expectations of taking general dermatology call, be it on a schedule or being a fill-in on, on weekends and, and holidays. So gentlemen, uh, any comments on on derm call and and moonlighting? 
when it comes to uh, you know dermatology call, it, that wasn't something you know for just general dermatology. If you'd be expected to do that if you're with the university practice, I that wasn't necessarily a question that I had in mind when I was going to my different fellowship interviews. But you know if if that's something that's really important to be aware of and know of, I think that uh, you know that's something that uh, an applicant can definitely inquire about. Um, I do know um, both at my residency program here, and there are many programs out there that do offer the chance to moonlight in general dermatology taking call. But you know, many of those are not mandatory. It's you know, it's all what the patient would like. I do know of a few programs as well, though, in fellowship that that is something that is required of their of their fellows that they actually take medical dermatology call. Um, I can't speak to, to the extent and how often or how much, but I, I did interview at a few places that did have that. So if that is something that is important to you to be aware of, it's, um, you know, make sure to, to learn that. And often those, those things are on their website. Before you interview, they'll, they'll, they'll mention that either those opportunities are available or that it's a requirement of the program. And then, um, you know, the individual applicants can make their own, you know, judgments and decisions on you know, their preference. I'm glad you bring up the the websites, um, Brandon, because certainly we know the the match is through the San Francisco Match website, but uh, it, it's it's really important that you look at the individual programs websites uh, rather than just the uh, San Francisco Match website, because you may find that they have additional requirements for letters of recommendation or um, specifically tailored questions for the personal statement. So um, that's not always readily apparent when you're submitting the application through the uh, common website. One of the things that certainly is on every dermatology resident's mind is the cost of, of doing all of this. And there are many things where there's simply no way around the expense of it. But uh, any tips for, for saving a, a dollar or two along the application trail? Uh, Brandon, we'll start with you. Sure. I would just like to circle back real quick to what you said before. It's really important for all the applicants, for every program that you apply to, you need to go to that program's website and see if there's a secondary application. The secondary applications are not listed on the San Francisco match, and you'll have no idea that the secondary application is required unless you really go through the program's website carefully. Yeah, I agree with Brandon on that, too. I think it's very important. Um, is, so as far as for saving money on interviews, my recommendation uh, would be to group the interviews regionally if at all, if at all possible. So if you're going to interview in New York, if you could interview at all the New York programs at once, certainly saves you a couple plane tickets. Um, and same with, same with programs um, in other dense, in other dense areas. The other thing is, I mean, inter interviewing for these, uh, these interviews are expensive. You know, there's 750 to a thousand dollars in interview. So it's a significant financial commitment from each uh, interviewee. And so that's just something to know, obviously driving, if they're in the city, your home city that you're already in, driving is obviously nice, or if you can drive further. Staying with friends, if you have friends in the area, obviously that's helpful, uh, and staying with them. So those are just uh, some things to note. With the airlines and the hotels, create the rewards accounts so that, um, you know, that you get those, that you get those points. But that's, that's really all the recommendations are. I, I would basically just say the same things um, that Brandon said. I One thing that I think was at least kind of more difficult in my experience was, you know, 
different interviews coming at different times. Um, so trying to group them regionally, I think, is ideal. However, that could be a little bit not as feasible uh, in the the real life setting. But I think it's worth it. It was worth it to me to drive to as many as I could. So if that meant I was driving, you know, for 10 hours, I, I drove to a few 10 hour drive one way that helped me save a lot of money. Cause that was something that was important for me, you know, just trying to manage financially the, the expenses that came in. Um, so, you know, I was fortunate to be able to have a lot of my interviews in places that I could drive to, which, you know, cut down a lot of the cost of having to fly. But like Brandon said, if you're in this situation where you're needing to fly a lot, um, there are a lot of different airlines out there and, you know, credit cards or whatever that might be that you could look into just to see if there's ways that you can get those either at a cheaper rate or um, have more rewards that come back from it. And I guess I'll just throw in, um, there's there's usually, especially around the um, universities and academic uh, medical centers, uh, a rich selection of Airbnb Mm -hmm. places that you can rent a room or rent a house and for better or worse um that usually makes for a great icebreaker with the future fellowship oh, yeah. director when you can talk about sharing the um the, the house with a large multi-generational vietnamese family in philadelphia which <laughs> was my pleasant experience so um but you sleep for very affordable costs so Everybody has to individually balance those things. Let, yeah. Let's see what, what else we should cover here. Anything to do to prep for Gosh. fellowship once you've matched um, in terms of like how are you using these months now apart from just studying for the boards? Anything that you're doing specifically? So a lot – I'm not going to lie. A lot of my time right now is spent for the boards um, as much as I can. So it's not necessarily specific to you know surgery. But as much as I can, I like to read up on journal articles, things that are coming out, whether it's Derm Surge or AAD that are focused on um, most surgery or other techniques in, in surgical dermatology. So that's a little the extent I have. I wish I could spend more time, but I'm just primarily focused on, on my boards. Brandon, how is taking boards during fellowship? It's really, it's not as bad as it sounds or seems. The, I think the key is Blake's doing absolutely the right thing. The key to prepping for fellowship is to pass the boards. So after you match, just study for that. You'll have plenty of time during your fellowship to study for the uh, derm surge and Mohs and stuff that stuff like that. So the key is focus on your boards. Do all your board studying or as much of it as you can before you show up for fellowship. And that way you're not taking the first month or two out of fellowship to study for your boards. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I think a lot of these points will be um, very gratefully received from some of our younger listeners who are potentially in that process right now. Um, Blake or, or Brandon, any other points that you think we should hit as we talk about a, a resident making the decision to um, apply for fellowship and, and some pearls for matching into that fellowship and having a good fellowship year? Be open, learn as much as you can, listen. And uh, I always have a piece of paper in my, in my back pocket. And if I, if I see something that's interesting or that uh, so, you know, Dr. Brolin says, or Dr. Zatelli says something important. I pull out a piece of paper and I write it down. And I always have it. And, I, and then I just accumulate those notes over the year. And uh, so I, I think just being open, being humble, and um, learning as, as much as possible. The year goes by very quickly. So uh, those are my recommendations. And I guess I would just add that 
take those physical or mental notes, not just on the the Mohs surgery or the technical aspects of the profession, but observe what you like or dislike about how the office or department is is run. Observe mm-hmm. and note what you like about how the uh, Mohs surgeon interacts with their histotech, um, how they communicate things like requesting recuts, how they give feedback to their nurses and medical assistants. Um, because I think as any established Mohs surgeons will tell you, uh, the resection of the tumor and the reconstruction quickly becomes one of the more straightforward aspects of the job, and it's the interpretation of challenging histology and the management of of challenging relationships that that takes up a lot of your your attention. So that's that's probably opportunity for growth long after you graduate from fellowship. Yes, and that's and that's a great point, Thomas. And that's something to do when you're on the interview trail, and and I did that as well is that I took notes on how the office was set up, how, um, how they interacted with the histotech, what were the, what were the pros, what were the cons of the different offices, just to learn. Cause you're not going to, you know, the cool thing about interviewing is you're going to go through five, 10 most practices and see while most surgery is, is unique and is done um, similarly, how the offices set up are vastly different. The workflows are vastly different and those workflows contribute to, fellow happiness and satisfaction and also physician happiness and satisfaction. And so seeing who has the best workflows, how to optimize though, those are extremely important. And so something to definitely look at during your fellowship, but also really important during the interview. I, I, I would agree. And I think that's where you, you run up against the containing costs because I think two week or one week electives or even going on multiple interviews taught me so much from the paradigm or dogma that I thought was most surgery based on my excellent home program. Uh, my home program um, at Dartmouth was, was great. We didn't have a fellowship at the time, but it was uh, incredibly valuable to see how things are done at the University of Pennsylvania or uh, with Dr. Zatelli and Broadland in, in Pittsburgh. And whether or not I ever matched there, I, I took away so many valuable pearls on how those places operate. So I, I, while containing cost is, is important as a resident, um, there is a huge amount of learning to be had simply by going on these one-day interviews or five to 14-day uh, elective rotation. Yeah, and I would just add to that, I would say go on as many interviews as you possibly can, um, even if there are just some programs that you you don't anticipate being very high on your list because you could be very surprised at how, how, um, how much you mesh with their program and how great their program really is. And not only if you feel like you could match there, you end up learning a lot from the so many different ways that Moses practiced and the way different practices are run and their, their, uh, clinic culture and things like that. And I would, I would say with, on regarding the electives, um, if your residency is able to afford you different times for extended electives, you know, week-long electives or a few days here and there. I think that's really helpful because I was able to go on a few that I had anticipated really loving some. And when I went there, I kind of learned that it maybe wasn't the best fit for me, which helped me with my rank list later. But then I also went on a few others that I was not maybe as as excited about, but then really found out were, were really amazing and I really liked them. So that helped me get a little bit more exposure to their 
their practice model and the people I'd be working with. And that was, was truly helpful. Excellent. Well, Blake, Brandon, I, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I hope this provided a relatively comprehensive overview for, for those applying for what is a great career. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Certainly, uh, the following podcast will be going back to more of a research and literature-based podcast. To our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues, and in this case, especially with your trainees and residents. Let us know how we're doing and who else you'd like to have on the show by contacting info at mostcollege.org. This podcast in particular came out of the request of some residents from centers applying for, for Mose with some of these questions. So thank you, and I hope you join me next time on Conversations in Mose Surgery. <laughs>